This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. How can we talk about free will in the multiverse, a universe with infinite copies of ourselves? At its core, freedom means being able to make a personal, conscious decision about your own behavior. Freedom means choosing your own path out of poverty. Human imagination is our greatest freedom. For indigenous people, freedom is self-determination. It originally meant the power to rule, and in a democracy, the power to rule and be ruled as an equal. With our colleagues across the campus, the Division of Arts and Humanities at the University of California, San Diego, presents Degrees of Freedom. An extraordinary public lecture series featuring six unique perspectives on what it means to be free. It's a great pleasure to introduce to you Monty Johnson. He's associate professor in the philosophy department here, specializes in Greek philosophy, and he received his degree. There actually, God bless them, is a program called the Collaborative Program in Ancient and Medieval Philosophy at the University of Toronto, and Professor Johnson is a product of that program. He joined us here at UCSD in 2006, He's the recipient of an NEH fellowship. He has written a book on Aristotle on teleology, published by Oxford University Press. Tonight, the topic is It's Complicated, the relation between freedom and democracy, according to the Greeks. So please welcome to the podium, Professor Monty Johnson. Thank you all for coming. I'd like to begin by thanking Stephen and Alan for inviting me to speak in this series. And I'd also like to thank my colleagues and predecessors in the series, especially Nancy Pistero and Paul Niehaus, who have just given very difficult acts for me to follow. Nancy speaking about self-determination and Paul about development. And I realized these people are not just giving a theoretical account of freedom, but they're out actually practically doing things that promote and build self-determination and development, and I thought that was very impressive. So I'm afraid to have to say that my talk is purely theoretical, historical, and philosophical. I want to get to the bottom of the notion of what is freedom, and I want to approach the question by looking at its origin among the Greeks in the 5th and 4th century BC. But I'd like to start with a quotation that I took from the radio this morning when President Obama was asking for congressional authorization for waging war on Iraq. And he said at the end of his speech, our cause is just. Long after the terrorists we face today are destroyed and forgotten, America will continue to stand free and tall and strong. And I wondered about 
equating these notions free and tall and strong and why we assume that freedom is automatically a good thing and why we assume that democracy is automatically a good thing and why freedom should be related to these other virtues. And I'm going to be talking about a time where there was considerable skepticism about the value of freedom and democracy. And so I think that by appreciating why people were initially skeptical and dubious about this notion, we can better understand our own ideas about freedom and why we've taken the views on them that we have. But before I can talk about the notion of freedom itself, I need to give some background about Greek political terminology. And I'll do this by introducing you to the following table, which was given in its classical form by Aristotle, but originated in essence in the fifth century much earlier than him. And what we do is we distinguish types of political constitution based on the quantity of rulers, rule by one, rule by a few, and rule by many. And for each of those kinds of constitution, we distinguish between a correct version and a corrupted or perverse version. Now, according to Aristotle, the difference between a correct and a corrupt form of government is that the correct forms of government are in the public interest. The rulers rule for the sake of the common interest, whereas in a corrupt regime, the rulers rule in their own and in a private interest. So just to go through the terminology, if the correct form of rule by one is a kingship, then the corrupt version of this is a tyranny. And if you think that kingship is the best form of government, then its corruption will be the worst form of government. Thus, tyranny is the worst form of government. Rule by few, the correct version is called aristocracy, which literally means the best people have the power in the society. The corrupt version of this we call an oligarchy, which means a, a society or a regime that is ruled by a few. Now, rule by many, of course, we call democracy, but notice that Aristotle puts democracy in the corrupt column, and that's because he thinks that a democracy is ruled by many, and of course the many are poor, and the poor, when they end up ruling in a democracy, rule in their own interests and sort of discriminate against the rich. So Aristotle has an idea about a correct form of rule by many, and he calls this species of government by the name of the overall genus. So he just calls it the constitutional government. So with that in hand, I'd now like to talk about the discovery or invention of the concept of freedom. As Kurt Ralfleb, who has done the definitive and a magisterial study on the discovery of freedom in ancient Greece, has said, a political concept of freedom emerged in Greece for the first time in world history. Neither Egypt and the Near Eastern civilizations that preceded the Greek or were contemporary with it, nor China seem to have needed and created such a political concept. Now, I agree with almost everything that Ralph Leb says in this study, and mostly I will build on his argument for the fifth century and add some text to support his argument and then extend it into the fourth century. But I do take issue with a few things he says, 
And this can be most clearly seen with some disagreements I have about some terms in the title. So I do not think that the Greeks discovered the free freedom because I don't think freedom is like a new island or a new chemical element that's out there waiting to be discovered. Rather, I think the idea was invented and invented by specific people at a specific point in time who had a specific purpose. In fact, I think they invented a no several different notions of freedom, and they extended the original notion of freedom into several different spheres. So I would rather talk about the invention of freedoms according to the Greeks. And so I will distinguish between these six different kinds of freedom, and I think they developed in the order that I show on the slide. And so just to give you an overview, the first and most radical and original notion of freedom is the status of a free person as opposed to being a slave. And so it essentially means the power to rule and not to be ruled in the economy of the household. The household is the basic economic unit of ancient Greek society. It consists of a series of relationships, a relationship between a husband and his wife, between a father or the parents and the children, and between the master and the slave or slaves in the household. And one person can occupy the first term of each of those relationships, and so the husband, father, and master being one person, and this is essentially the original idea of freedom, the person who has that status in a household. Now, the way that the concept of freedom developed after this archaic concept was not into the political concept with which we're most familiar, but it was immediately applied in the geopolitical context of the Persian Wars, their aftermath with the development of the Athenian Empire, and into the Peloponnesian Wars. And here it means something like sovereignty or self-determination. The Persian king was viewed as a despotical tyrant, all of whose subjects were slaves. And the rhetoric was that he was threatening to make slaves out of all of the Greek cities. And so the Greek cities should not become slaves, but should remain free with their own sovereign powers and self-determination. So this kind of freedom means the power of a city, or a polis, a city-state, to rule by its own laws and have its own citizens rule. It's only after we have the development of that geopolitical concept that we get the development of a political concept of freedom where we transfer this notion of freedom back down into the political realm that sits between the lower realm of the household and the economic unit, but below the geopolitical unit that deals with the relations between the city-states. And here, the key idea is democracy. And we can basically define this kind of freedom as the power of all citizens to rule and to be ruled as equals. Now, related with this idea of freedom is a notion I call libertarian freedom and is essentially what we mean by liberty. And it was connected with this political freedom. But the idea was to have the power or license to do and live as one pleases, to ideally not be ruled by anyone at all, or if you are to be ruled, only be ruled 
occasionally and be able to rule the same people in turn. Now, our philosophers are extremely dubious of this notion of freedom. They think it gets out of control, they think it has bad political effects, and they think it has bad psychological effects on the people that have it. And they develop an alternative notion, which I call intrapersonal freedom. And this we identify with self-control or self-mastery. The idea is that there are different parts of a human being. There's a body and a soul, for example, and that one's soul should rule, not one's body. One shouldn't, one's soul shouldn't be a slave to the body. Rather, the body should be a slave to the soul. And even within the soul, there are different parts. There are irrational desires and pleasures and emotions and passions and impulses and drives. And these should be controlled by the, ra by the rational part. Reason should be the master and treat those other subordinate parts of the soul like slaves. And this is described as a kind of freedom by Plato and Aristotle. And the final notion of freedom that I'll talk about I call academic freedom, and we associate it with the idea of the liberal arts, or what I would prefer to call the free sciences. And this amounts to the power to pursue knowledge for its own sake and not have to make everything be in the service of some other economic or political end. And I call this academic freedom, though that might seem anachronistic, since it's only very recently that robust ideas of academic freedom seem to have been developed. But this is a notion of freedom that developed within Plato's academy, specifically by his student Aristotle, who gave a brilliant expression of it in a lost dialogue called the Protrepticus that I'm attempting to reconstruct, and I'll show you some parts of that later in the talk. Now, the rest of the talk, I'm just going to expand on each of these kinds of freedom and give you a textual basis for them and make a couple of comments about them. And some I'll have much more to say about than others. And most of my talk will be focused on the crucial idea of political freedom. Mostly, I'll try to let the texts speak for themselves, because, of course, these great orators and philosophers are much more eloquent than I am, but also because I don't necessarily agree with the ideas that I'm presenting to you. My object is to give you a framework for thinking about the development of freedom, and so that you can decide what you make of the criticisms of freedom, and also whether you think that there are other criticisms to be made of the defenses that are given of freedom. So let me begin by talking about personal freedom. And this is the, our earliest, our core notion. It developed in the Archaic Age. Actually, the abstract noun eleutheria, meaning freedom, didn't develop in this age. In this age, we did only have the adjectival notion of being free. So Homer, in late 8th, 8th to early 7th century, and only in the Iliad, by the way, uses this term eleutheros when he's referring to a day of freedom or a free day as opposed to the day of enslavement. And what he means by that is the exact day, the moment at which a city is either defeated or victorious in war. If they're defeated, then their military is slaughtered and the women and children of their city are put into slavery. Thus, the day of enslavement. If you're victorious, it's the day of freedom, or the free day. The first case where we actually have the notion of free contrasted with slave in a theoretical context is in the philosopher Heraclitus of Ephesus, 
who has the nickname the obscure philosopher, although I think this is one of his clearer expressions, he said, war is the father of all and the king of all. Some he makes slaves, others free. And I think he's referring to exactly these set of facts that I've just mentioned, that war determines who ends up with the status of being free or slave in the context of personal freedom and the household. Other uses of the adjective free in this time that are important are at the very beginnings of the development of Greek democracy and Solon's laws, where he liberates Greek citizens from debt bondage, and also, in the cases of several of his laws, differentiates between those who have a free or slave status, and in some other cases, says that this status is irrelevant to how, to what kind of punishment should be imposed for breaking the law. Now, as I said, the next way that the concept of freedom develops is not, as you might expect, to expand it from the household into the city or the state itself, but goes on to the geopolitical realm and goes into the idea of an entire state or a polis being freedom, being free by not being subjugated to others. And here's an expression of that coming from Pericles' funeral oration. He said, Our ancestors dwelt in the country, meaning Athens, without break in the succession from generation to generation and handed it down free to the present time by their valor. And if our more remote ancestors deserve praise, much more do our own fathers, who added to their inheritance the empire which we now possess, and spared no pains to be able to leave their acquisitions to us of the present generation. Lastly, there are few parts of our dominion that have not been augmented by those of us here, who are still more or less in the vigor of life. While the mother country has been furnished by us with everything that can enable her to depend on her own resources, whether for war or for peace. And this idea of that Pericles' immediate ancestors and his own generation have created a status of self-sufficiency for the city is crucial to an idea of freedom. In fact, in another much more obscure author named Archytas of Tarentum, who was a king and a Pythagorean mathematical philosopher to whom mathematical accomplishments are attributed, basically said, if you want to keep your city free, you need to have self-sufficiency, autarky, with respect to the resources for war and your own economy. So this is certainly a crucial notion. But we can summarize these ideas of geopolitical freedom by specifying three elements of geopolitical freedom. One is sovereignty or self-determination. Autonomia is the relevant Greek term from which we get the, Greek, the English word autonomy. And this means being able to rule by your own laws. The second element is, as I mentioned, self-sufficiency or autarky, autarkia in Greek. And that is necessary in order to defend the state's freedom. In response to the Persian War and in the development of its empire, Athens insisted on a kind of absolute sovereignty in all of its territorial and ethical moral aspects. And in order to do that and defend that territorial integrity and sovereignty, though it was realized they needed to be self-sufficient because they needed to be on a constant state of military preparedness. And so there was an effort to create a self-sufficient condition for that purpose. 
Necessary for creating that self-sufficient self-sufficiency was a notion of absolute liberty of, on the part of Athens to expand its dominion and to rule other states so as to extract resources from them and to build up their own self-sufficiency and their military power. And the condition of the states that were subjugated to them was explicitly described as one of servitude. Now consider this quote from Aeschylus's play Prometheus Bound. All tasks are burdensome except to rule the gods. No one is free but Zeus. The idea there is that in order to be free, in the strict sense, you have to rule everyone else. And this, this idea was taken seriously by these Athenians. Democrats though they were, they thought, if we're going to ensure our own freedom, we need to rule other people. We need to impose our freedom on others who will then be subjects or slave in accordance, slaves in accordance with the original and radical notion of freedom. Now, as of yet, I've said nothing about the development of political freedom. So now I will, but first I have to comment on a very awkward situation. And that's uh, put well by Josiah Ober in his work, Political Descent in Democratic Athens, he points out that although we have a good many classical texts in various genres that are highly critical of democracy, we have no surviving texts written with the explicit intention of explaining to the reader the principles on which Athenian democracy was predicated. Let me emphasize that. We don't have any texts that explain and defend why democracy was originally set up as it was. We have to discern this from glimmers coming from other sources, such as the funeral oration of Pericles as it was rewritten in Thucydides' history, and Thucydides himself may have been hostile to the notion of democracy, or meager fragments from Democritus of Abdera from a lost and unknown work, a speech in the name of Theseus that's given in the suppliant women by Euripides of Athens, or the words of an anonymous Abderite philosopher that were preserved in a much later Syrian writer named Iamblichus. And finally, in some fragments of a work called On Law and Justice by Archytas of Tarentum, the mathematician king who I just mentioned. By the way, I'm working on a joint project to reconstruct that work as well that I'm carrying out with my colleague, Dr. Philip Horky at Durham University. Now, let's look at these two fragments of Democritus as being the earliest expressions of ideas about freedom and about democracy. So, Democritus said, freedom of speech is essential to freedom, but in the determination of the right time to speak lies danger. And what he means there is that this idea of parousia, Freedom of speech doesn't just mean the right to speak, but it means to be outspoken, to speak truth to power, to say it like it is. And of course, if that's your concept of freedom of speech, then there is a great danger in when you choose to speak, and that's what he's pointing out. He also said that poverty in a state where people possess the power, which is a way of translating the word democracy, is as much to be preferred to so-called prosperity under elites as freedom is to slavery. Now that is the earliest 
occurrence of the term democracy in our evidence base, and the reference to prosperity under elites makes it clear that he's contrasting, as he does freedom to slavery, democracy with oligarchy, with rule by a few rich people. Now, we can get more details about this idea of political freedom by reading a little bit more of Pericles' funeral oration, where he shifts from talking about the geopolitical notion of freedom we discussed earlier to describing the political situation within Athens, the righteousness of which he thinks justifies their empire and dominion over others. He says... Our constitution does not copy the laws of neighboring states. We are rather a pattern for others than imitators ourselves. Its administration favors the many instead of the few. This is why it is called a democracy. If we look to the laws, they afford equal justice to all in their private differences. If to social standing, advancement in public life falls to reputation for capacity, class considerations not being allowed to interfere with merit. Nor again does poverty bear the way. If a man is able to serve the state, he is not hindered by the obscurity of his condition. The freedom which we enjoy in our government extends also to our ordinary life. There, far from exercising a jealous surveillance over each other, we do not feel called upon to be angry with our neighbor for doing what he likes, or even to indulge in those injurious looks which cannot fail to be offensive, although they inflict no real harm. Now, there are several elements of democratic freedom that I'm going to unpack there, but first I want to show you some of the evidence from Euripides' suppliant women. And here I'll give you a, a, a short synopsis of the plot. What's happened is that Thebes has recently repelled an aggressive invasion and they've defeated and killed off the invading force, and the uh, women uh, of the invading force, the, the wives of the invading force, haven't been able to collect the bodies to give them the proper burial that they need in accordance with Greek religious customs. And so they implore Theseus through his mother that will you take care of the situation and force and compel Thebes to hand these bodies over. And Theseus says, yes, I'm very inclined to do this, but... Uh, quote, I require the whole city's sanction also, which my wish will ensure. Still by communicating the proposal to them, I would find the people better disposed. For I made them supreme when I set the city free by giving all an equal vote. Now, a little bit later in the dialogue, a herald from Thebes shows up and he says, where's the local despot? Where's the local despot? I've got a message to give someone. And Theseus, irritatingly, being irritated at this, responds that you've made a false beginning to your speech, stranger, in seeking a despot here, for this city is not ruled by one man, but is free. The people rule in succession, year by year, allowing no preference to wealth, but the poor man shares equally with the rich. After that, the herald responds with something like, well, I come from a place where a despot who knows what he's doing runs things, not an angry, uneducated, illiterate mob like in your city, to which Theseus responds, nothing is more hostile to a city than a despot. Where he is... There are, first, no laws common to all, but one man is tyrant, in whose keeping and in his alone the law resides, and in that case, equality is at an end. 
But when the laws are written down, rich and weak alike have equal justice, and it is open to the weaker to use the same language to the prosperous when he is reviled by him, and the weaker prevails over the stronger if he has justice on his side. Freedom's mark is also to be seen in this. Who has wholesome counsel to declare unto the state? And he who chooses to do so gains renown, while he who has no wish remains silent. What greater equality can there be in a city? So now I'll try to summarize the various elements of freedom that we find in these texts, the fragments of Democritus, the speech of Theseus in the play by Euripides, and in the speech of Pericles' funeral oration as related in Thucydides' history. The crucial elements of this kind of freedom are, number one, people power, that is democracy, rule of the entire citizen body, including the poor, as opposed to rule by the rich and, a, and the few, as in an oligarchy, sovereignty of the people in the assembly and their representation in annually rotating organs of government. Also, equal power, or isokratia in Greek, and this in two senses equality before the law and in political participation, or isonomia, and equal right of participation in rotation, where offices are exchanged every year, and so everybody takes their turn governing. This is what it means to rule and be ruled in turn. Written laws, which are equally binding on all people, an equal vote, uh, equal value for every vote in decision-making, and finally, equality of speech, or isagoria, and freedom of speech, parousia. All of those are represented as being crucial to this idea of political freedom. Now, one point that I want to lay some stress on is the importance of the idea of the rule of law. So several of our sources say that without the rule of law, there is no such thing as freedom. You have to have a situation in which the rulers themselves are subject to the law, or else you'll inevitably get a situation of tyranny. So an obscure, anonymous, Abderite philosopher, I have a theory that it's actually Democritus, but some other people think that it's Protagoras and some others, points out that the only way you get tyranny coming about is from lawlessness and when the rule of law collapses. Therefore, people who are deprived of freedom, he says, are themselves the cause. They become lawless, the law loses legitimacy, and then it passes over into the guardianship and withdraws to one single individual who's a tyrant. And uh, Archytas of Tarentum, who I mentioned earlier, also stresses the importance of rule of law, pointing out that every community is constituted out of a ruler, ruled, and thirdly, laws. Of laws, the one, the king, is animate, but the other, the written law, is inanimate. The law is primary, for by means of it, the king is law-abiding, the ruler is compliant, the man who is ruled is free, and the whole community is successful. In contravention of this law, the king is tyrannical, the ruler non-compliant, and the man who is ruled slavish, and the whole community is unsuccessful. And Archytas of Tarentum's idea of a beneficial law is exactly like the one I said Aristotle uses to distinguish between correct and corrupt regimes. That is, it's beneficial to the political community if it's not in the hands of a sole ruler or a monarch, 
nor in the service of any private interest, but rather in the public interest and extended to everyone. Another interesting idea about freedom and democracy on the part of Archytas in this work on law and justice is that he advocates a mixed constitution where you would have an element of democracy and an element of aristocracy, etc. So he says that the better law and city-state should be a synthesis of all the other kinds of political constitution, have something of a democracy, something of an oligarchy, something of a kingship, something of an aristocracy. And he thinks that this is modeled on the archaic regime of the Spartans. He says if you have that kind of arrangement, then no one part will get out of hand, but each part will be able to, as he puts it, counterbalance the other parts, offering a notion something like the balance of powers. We can think of our own constitution along similar lines. We have a democratic element in our legislature, but we've also got aristocratic elements, like in our court system where the uh, the Supreme Court, where the justices are elected for life on the basis of their merits. And we also have something like a kingship or tyranny, depending on who you ask, in our executive branch, where we have a single president who executes all of the laws. And the idea is that we have these different departments of our government and a mixture of constitutions because we believe in a balance of power. So I've now described to you the essential notions behind this Greek idea of political freedom. And now I'll move on to discuss critics of democracy. And believe me, there were lots of critics of democracy. According to Aristotle, oligarchs took the following oath. I will be evilly disposed toward the people and will contrive against it whatever ill I can. Uh, you can imagine our modern day oligarchs taking the exact same kind of, kind of oaths. Now, Though we have poverty as far as our sources defending and explaining democratic freedom, we have riches as far as criticisms of democratic freedom. One of the, the, the most ancient critic we have is a guy who we used to think was Xenophon, so he had the awkward name Pseudo-Xenophon, when we realized he wasn't actually Xenophon, and then somebody came up with the clever idea of just calling him the old oligarch because of the views that he expresses in it. Besides him, we have the more familiar faces of Plato of Athens and his pupil Aristotle of Stagira, and I'll mostly be talking about texts from Plato's Republic and from Aristotle's politics, but I'll also include a discussion of some passages from Aristotle's Lost Dialogue, the Protrepticus or Exhortation to Philosophy, a work that I'm attempting to reconstruct with my colleague D.S. Hutchinson from the University of Toronto. Now, I want to point out and stress this somewhat surprising idea that Plato and Aristotle do not give us a defense of political freedom. I completely agree with the remark of Morgan's Hansen that as a political value, eleutheria, or freedom, seems to have been inseparably bound up with democracy. Plato and Aristotle seem to have no problem rejecting democratic freedom as a mistaken ideal without developing an understanding of political freedom. This is the, despite the attempt of my students and people, scholars that I admire and so forth, to constantly attempt to discover a, a vital notion of freedom in Plato and Aristotle. But I think this is misguided. I think we learn more about freedom by taking their criticisms of it at face value and trying to understand 
what their concerns were and how they can be addressed. So I turn to the criticisms of the old oligarch. And I do this because I think that they are the most harsh and straightforward criticisms, and that we, in Plato and Aristotle, have better rhetoric defending essentially these ideas and expanding on these ideas. Now, the problem that the old oligarch has with the democratic regime that he's living under in Athens is that he thinks that everywhere on earth the better class of people is opposed to democracy. And the reason for this is that democratic, the democratic masses, the majority, the people, are scum. And they're scum because they're poor. Because they're poor, they can't afford to get an education. And if you can't afford to get an education, then you can't develop virtues of character. And if you can't develop virtues of character because you're too busy working with your hands or whatever, then you will necessarily give in to vice. You'll be an ignorant person filled with vices, cowardice, and so forth. And we certainly don't want those people in charge of the city. So the old oligarch dreams of having an oligarchic revolution he admits that it's impossible and doesn't think it can actually happen, but what he'd like to happen is have the good people, the rich, educated, virtuous people, to take over, impose power in Athens, and turn the rest of the people into what he does not hesitate to call a condition of slavery, and then govern by uh, the few, and then we would have good government. Good government on the basis of educated people who know what we're doing, not an angry, uneducated mob. Now, we turn, when we turn to the criticisms that we find in Aristotle, they're, of course, a lot more subtle than this, but they essentially build on this point. So Aristotle is also dubious of the uneducated status of the poor, and his, the conditions that he would put on who's considered a citizen relate to these ideas. Now, here's his, the, the most neutral description he gives of the idea of democratic freedom. And even in these lines, you can detect the basis of his criticism, which I'll explain in due course. So he points out that the basis of a democratic constitution is freedom, which, according to the common opinion of men, can only be enjoyed in such a constitution. This they affirm to be the greatest end of every democracy. One principle of freedom is for all to rule and be ruled in turn. And indeed, democratic justice is the application of numerical, not proportionate equality. Whence it follows that the majority must be supreme, and that whatever the majority approve must be the end and be just. Every citizen, it is said, must have equality, and therefore in a democracy the poor have more power than the rich, because there are more of them, and the will of the majority is supreme. This, then, is one note of freedom on which all Democrats affirm to be the principle of their state. The other note of freedom, the second one that he discusses, expands this notion of political freedom into what I've called libertarian freedom, the power to do as you please, to do what you like. That a man should live as he likes is, they, the Democrats, say, the result of being free. Since on the one hand, not to live as a man likes is the mark of a slave. This is the second characteristic of democracy, which has, whence has arisen the claim of men to be ruled by none, if possible, or if this is impossible, to rule and be ruled in turn, so it contributes to the freedom based on equality. 
Now, Aristotle's criticism of this notion of democratic freedom comes down to a distinction he makes between different kinds of equality. He's critical of what he calls mere numeric or arithmetic quality, equality. This is where one gives an equal amount to all, including those who are unequal. He says, of course, this kind of equality is favored by Democrats. We give um, one more unit than you have to somebody who has an equal value of two, and we give one more unit than they already have to somebody who has a value of one. Now, Aristotle says this notion is only appropriate in the context of corrective justice. For example, murder or theft or adultery or something. In those situations, it doesn't matter whether the perpetrator is a rich man, is well-born, or is poor, or is virtuous or vicious, and it doesn't matter what the situation of the victim is. In any case, one should get the same punishment regardless of the circumstance that you're in. So that's appropriate for a certain kind of justice, but in the context of distributive justice, where we have scarce, finite resources, and we're trying to determine who should get these resources and how much each person should get, Aristotle favors what he calls proportionate or geometric equality. So, for example, if your value, your merit, is a two, then you should be given four units of some good, whereas if your merit is only a one, then you should only be given two units. And this is proportional to your youth, to, to your use and your value. This gives a proportionally unequal amount to those who are unequal. The slogan is equal for equals, but unequals for unequals. And he points out that this is, of course, the notion of equality favored by oligarchs and aristocrats, depending on whether they're describing themselves or being described by Democrats. This, Aristotle says, is appropriate in the case of distributive justice. So he will only make the concession about a true kind of equality where people get the, the same amount in the context of corrective justice. Now, as I pointed out in the earlier table of Aristotle's constitutions, he does envision a form of government that would be a rule by the many, but it would be a correct, not a corrupt form like democracy is. And he calls this constitutional government. And what it is, is it's a kind of rule by the best, but the many people somehow being the best. And what he does in the later books of the politics is give us an analysis of pure forms of oligarchy and then mixed forms of oligarchy that implement more and more democratic procedures. Like they might have voting on some issues or they might allow um, the poor to speak on some issues in the forum, but not all and so forth. And he also describes a pure form of radical direct democracy, but then forms where that's mitigated a bit with considerations that protect the rich and in incorporate oligarchic elements. And this creates his mixed constitution. Now, you might be wondering how it is that we could create a good and correct form of constitution by combining two corrupt forms of constitution. As one uh, commentator put it, you can't just mix democracy and oligarchy like you mix a gin and tonic. 
It's uh, a lot more complicated than that, and in fact, the ingredients contradict each other. At any rate, Aristotle gives us an idea about how this might be done, and I think it's a useful way to look at even our current political situation. After all, we have oligarchic and aristocratic elements in our constitution and in our society, and to some extent these conflict with democratic aspects of our society. And the idea is that we ought to find some kind of balance of these if we're not going to give way to a radical democracy. Now, that's a rather complicated affair, so I'd like to go back to Plato, who gives us a much simpler way to think about corrupted and deviant constitutions. So, in Plato's Republic, he proposes how you would build a just society from the ground up. And he makes some rather radical proposals in doing this, including the idea of abolishing private property, in fact, abolishing the household and making the state extend into all circumstances and all organizations. And he also advocates the radical idea of giving women equal access to education and to political office. And these ideas are, in a way, what we think of now as democratic ideas. That's not how he thought of them. He thought of them as being ideal ideas. And he incorporated them into what he called his Callipolis, or the beautiful and fine and noble city. And in the later books of the Republic, he talks about how we get a degraded corruption from this perfect form of city that one sets up. And it goes through a series of stages. And it goes through these stages because of a psychological analysis of the mindset of the people who govern. So the psyches of the people that govern in Plato's Callipolis are perfectly balanced where their passions and so forth are controlled by reason and you have a dominion of reason. But unfortunately, some things go wrong with his eugenics and other policies. And so we get some corruption in the psychological aspects and a degradation to the state we call aristocracy, which then, because of the weak psychology of the aristocrats, degenerates into a military dictatorship or what's he, what he calls a timocratia, a city in which the honorable people have the power. But then because of their psychological failures, this degenerates into an oligarchy, and then we're a very small step from the most dreaded and corrupt form, democracy, which is what makes possible tyranny. So now I'll explain why Plato thinks that democracy sets the stage for tyranny, and in fact, why he thinks it directly causes tyranny. So, First of all, his notion of how Democrats come into power. Well, they come to be from slaughtering and banishing their opponents and violent revolution, basically, and by making freedom the most important notion. And so he says that as the government is, so will the man be, and that's a reference to this idea that there's an analogy between the organization and the political constitution and the constitution psychologically of the individual. In the democratic constitution and in the democratic mind or psyche, people are free, and the city is full of freedom and free speech. A man may say and do whatever he likes. And where freedom is, the individual is clearly able to order for himself his own life as he pleases. And this is very annoying to Plato, that somebody should organize their life as they please 
and not as would be ideal for the political circumstance, where people perform the function that they have according to the kind of person that they naturally are and according to their worth. And so he complains about the forgiving spirit of democracy and the disregard it shows for all these principles he developed in the earlier part of the republic and how they don't use expert statesmen, but rather let anybody who says that they're going to represent the people get into power. And so you have really bad politicians that just pander. These and other kindred characteristics are proper to democracy which is a charming form of government, he says, full of variety and disorder. The Greek word's actually anarchy, right? And dispensing a sort of equality to equals and unequals alike. And there we see him making that complaint that I talked about in connection with Aristotle's criticism, that equality means equal for equals and unequal for unequals. It doesn't mean equality. Equality doesn't mean what everybody thinks it means. Equality, it means giving more to those who deserve more. Now, Plato stresses that the good of democracy is freedom, but this is what he thinks is exactly the problem with it. This freedom gets out of hand both in the political situation and in the minds of the people that have it. He says that they consider this the glory of the state and they have an insatiable desire for freedom and they neglect everything else but this kind of freedom. And that's what occasions the demand for tyranny. When a democracy which is thirsting for freedom has evil cupbearers presiding over the feast and is drunk too deeply of the strong wine of freedom, then unless her rulers are very amenable and give a plentiful draft, she calls them to account and punishes them and says they're cursed oligarchs and loyal citizens are insultingly termed by her as slaves who hug their chains and men of naught. She would have subjects who are like rulers and rulers who are like subjects. These are men after her own heart whom she praises and honors both in public and private. Now in such a state, can freedom have any limit? And so he says that you get an excessive amount of freedom, a sort of obsession with freedom. And this excess of freedom, whether it's in a state or whether it's in a mind of an individual, passes over into a condition of slavery. And so tyranny naturally rises out of democracy and the most aggravated form of tyranny and slavery out of the most extreme form of freedom. Now, the other complaint that Plato has about this notion of freedom is the idea of libertarian freedom that I introduced in the beginning. And here his complaint is that what happens in the psychology of the individual who believes they have libertarian freedom, who believes they should live as they please and do what they want, and there should be a minimum amount of government governing what they do, is that this makes everyone equal to everyone that slaves start to think that they're equal to their masters, and wives start thinking they're equal to the husbands, and children think they're equal to their parents. And he says even the animals start thinking they're equal to the humans. And actually the most dreaded part is that students start thinking they're equal to their professors and so forth. And at this point we just have complete chaos and anarchy, and from that anarchical situation springs a deep form of tyranny. So Plato's solution to this is to clean the psychological situation up so that we make sure that those bad desires that we have, those emotions, those drives and impulses get regulated by reason. 
And the problem is that that can't happen in a democracy when you have poor people who have to work with their hands and so they don't have time to get educated and develop the virtues and this kind of self-control. So he says, why do you think that the condition of a manual worker is so despised? Well, is it for any other reason that when the best part is naturally weak in someone, it can't rule the beasts within him, but can only serve them and learn to flatter them? Therefore, to ensure that someone like that is ruled by something similar to what rules the best person, we say he ought to be the slave of that best person who has a divine ruler within himself. It isn't to harm the slave that we say he must be ruled, but because it is better for everyone to be ruled by divine reason, preferably within himself and his own, otherwise to be imposed from without. And Plato actually says that's the whole purpose of law, is to regulate that internal psychological condition, and that we all agree with that just as we raise our children. We don't let them run free and do whatever we want. We make sure that they've imposed and enslaved their desires and impulses to their reason, and only then will we set them free. Now, Aristotle accepts and develops this idea of intrapersonal freedom that I've been talking about, and he argues that just as a person is divided into body and soul, and that our souls should govern our body, we shouldn't let our bodies govern our souls, so within the soul there's a rational and the irrational part, and we shouldn't let the irrational part govern, but we should make the irrational part a slave to the reasonable part. So that's a Platonic line that he extends and develops quite a bit and does so in this work that I mentioned earlier called The Exhortation to Philosophy or The Protrepticus. Now whatever you make of that notion, he also develops a new, I think, idea of freedom that I've called academic freedom. So this dialogue was written when Aristotle was a pupil of Plato in the academy. And the academy, Plato's academy, the first institution of higher education in the Western world, pursued not just practical arts like rhetoric, giving law speeches, military, business, that kind of thing, but also theoretical and unapplied disciplines like astronomy, geometry, mechanics, mathematics, and that sort of thing. And it came under attack for this by other competing educators who said, you're not teaching these people to do stuff that's useful. You're teaching them worthless speculation into abstract ideas. And the point isn't to teach people what wealth is, it's to make them wealthy. And not to teach them what health is, but to make them healthy. And not teach them what happiness or what the good life is, but to make them live well and give them happiness. And so Aristotle responded to this by distinguishing between two kinds of knowledge, a kind that he compared to kinds of knowledge that serve other interests that we have, interests and needs of our body or of the irrational drives and desires we have, versus sciences that apply to the higher rational part of us that include speculation, pure speculation and theory for its own sake. And the highest kind of science along those lines he gives the honorific philosophy and says that one ought not to flee from philosophy since philosophy is, as we think, both a possession and a use of wisdom. And wisdom is among the greatest goods. No one should sail to the pillars of Heracles and run many risks for the sake of possessions while for the sake of intelligence devoting neither effort nor expense. It would be slave-like 
to strive to live rather than to live well, and to follow the opinions of the majority rather than evaluating the majority by one's own opinions, and to seek out possessions, but for the sake of what is beautiful, not to labor at all. And there was actually in the dialogue an attack on this theoretical philosophy and a defense of a purely practical form of philosophy by a character who argued that if you're not teaching, if your teaching doesn't lead to some practical benefits, if it doesn't create technology, if it doesn't create jobs, if it doesn't improve the economy or the political situation, if it doesn't do something outside of the concept of knowledge itself, then it's not worthwhile. To which Aristotle responded in his own voice, to seek for every science to produce something else and to require that it be useful is the demand of someone utterly unaware of how far apart in principle good things are from necessities. They're totally different. For this is not valuable because of that, and that for the sake of something else, and this goes on proceeding to infinity. Rather, this comes to a stop at some point. So it's absolutely ridiculous, then, to seek from everything a benefit beyond from the thing itself, and to ask, so what's the benefit for us? And what's the use? For it's true what we say, such a fellow doesn't seem like someone who is acquainted with beautiful goodness or with distinguishing between a cause and a co-cause. One might see that what we say is all the more true if someone transported us in thought, as it were, to the Isles of the Blessed. For in that place, neither use nor benefit would be produced in anything else, and only thinking and observation would remain, which we say even now is a free way of life. And so, in order to get us to imagine this idea of a pure, free kind of science pursued for the sake of knowledge itself, Aristotle transports us outside of our household, outside of our political context in the city, and even outside of the overall geopolitical context into a heaven-like area where there's no scarcity, there's no competition for resources, there's no political struggles, and so forth. In that situation, he says, if we had that, what would we want to do? What we would want to do is pursue pure thought, knowledge, experience, speculation, appreciation of nature, and so forth. So to conclude, that notion of freedom takes us very far from the original notion we started out with, which just meant something like to not be a slave. I think that there's something in common between all these kinds of, of uh, freedom, and if I'm to indicate what that is, I think it's rather problematic in a way, but the, the, the core idea of freedom seems to be having the power to rule. And so this concept of freedom is a dangerous one that perhaps is best contained when it is in a true democracy where it means not just the power to rule over others, but the power to rule and be ruled as an equal. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.